This is deep dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Daniel, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. Thank you. Thank you for having us here today. Um, long time coming. I'm really excited to have this conversation as a person that has has lived in Asia um, and, and, and been able to have conversations with people who are from India, but also arts, uh, metro arts, uh, anti-racism and approach to just arts in general and that lens and your own personal journey. So I'm excited like, yeah. to make this happen. Thank you. Uh, so let's let's like, let's get straight into it. So like I had to go on YouTube and I was like, okay, let me let me figure out like what part of the Indian stuff Daniel was from, and and so make sure I put Chin Chennai Chin Chennai 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 Chennai, and I'm like, oh, I might have to you know y'all known for arts, yes. temples, and all yes. of these things. Um, like, can you just tell us about their journey, like growing up in India? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's Let's a really that interesting journey about <laughs> colonization and yeah. anti-racism. Since you'd mentioned that, um, you know, in growing up in India, I was growing up in Chennai, which is um, one of the four cultural anchors, the four big cities of South India. And um, even though Kalakshetra is the equivalent of Juilliard in India, it was in my city. I had never heard about it all the years that I grew up there wow. in high school. Um, and the only thing that I tried and failed miserably at was uh, trying to learn how to play the piano. And <laughs> I'm tone deaf and I couldn't, couldn't quite make that work. Um, but I had never had a chance to learn traditional Indian dance in India. And so mm. that kind of talks about how colonization still has a huge footprint in, yeah. in the colonies, right? right? Like they're not colonies anymore, but, yeah. but still that the epitome was still Western art forms, even in India, with a history that's much longer than the colonizers. And it wasn't until I got to the US, uh, I was working as a janitor in a high school, and one night they said, oh, you have to close up the theater, and there's a performance there, I went and saw, and I saw a traditional Indian dance performance, right? Like, it's the first time I saw live performance in the US. Wow. Yeah. Wait, and, wait, so what year was this? This must have been like 1990-something, 90 five, six or seven. Was, so was like the whole Bollywood and thing, was that around, was that major back then? Or? Bollywood has been around for a long okay. time. So I think uh, the shift in Indian art into Bollywood happened was, our art forms are composite, so there's never just a play. All plays have music and dance and all of that in there. And it's a very traditional yeah. way of working in the arts. And often they tell the story of like, they ask the child, who goes to the teacher and says, I want to learn how to dance. And the teacher says, well, do you know music? If you don't know music, I can't teach you how to dance. And then you go to the music teacher and the music teacher says, well, do you know all the poetry of our culture? Because yeah. we sing the songs. If you don't know poetry, I can't teach you music. Yeah. So the kid goes to the music, uh, the poetry teacher, and the poetry teacher says, well, do you know rhythm? Poems right. all about rhythm. If you don't know rhythm, I can't teach you right. um, this and so that you know that all of the arts then then you keep going around that wheel yeah. and then you and you end up at the last uh, spoke and you can start at any spoke but really all of them are connected and so Bollywood was what happened when stage acting moved into film they right. kept all of the format of singing and dancing and all of that so here they compare it to musicals but it's mm -hmm. not quite a direct here musicals is a small sliver mm -hmm. of what we do but the way South Asian art forms work is always in a composite 
way yeah. traditionally. Yeah, I'm an international uh, film enthusiast, so I love looking at you know Indian yeah. films and seeing the musicals in the beginning, at the ending, but also more so of the messaging to yes. combating the colonization uh, from the British. Yeah, um, has like like out loud, like it's like it's there. They're not they're not hiding it. It's like this is what's happened, and these are our heroes in these yeah. movies that's fighting back to combat those things. Yeah, um, and so I want to set that up to with the question of like what kind of sparked your own kind of champion of like anti racism and, and and being a person that calls that out and tries to combat that. Yeah, I think if I have to like go back to a moment I can remember um, around 2008 or 9 there was an article that came out in the New York Times asking why are there no black ballerinas mm. and to me the question was like is that the question really you know yeah. like uh, and then what is my role as someone a dancer and choreographer in the South Asian dance form what is my role in answering that question yeah. right so I, I wrote a response to that question and it was on the dance USA's uh, directors listserv, and there were about 800 people on the listserv, and so this question came out, and they said, well, we need to tell them all the outreach we're doing, and we need to like put a stop to this, was their response to that New York Times article. And I said, no, there's a larger conversation we need to have. We need to ask, yes, well, first, why are there no black ballerinas? That's what the article right. is asking. But the article also put down the Alan Ailey company and said that Alicia Graff was wasted at Alvin Ailey. And I was like, mm. Alvin Ailey is one of the biggest company right. in the US. And so already you're saying that if there's, already you're saying that black ballerina, that's the epitome, right? Like that's what you want. In the same statement, you're saying that this amazing dancer is being wasted at the Alvin Ailey company. Like, what are you saying? That anything that's not ballet is not worth it? You right. know, like, but I also want to like back up and say, I got into the arts also both through my South Asian form, but in my computer science degree, I had to take a physical education requirement and I took a ballet class and that changed my life, right? Mm -hmm. Like I became a dancer because of those two things coming together. But in this moment, um, they were saying that there are no black ballerinas, but also the dancers who are working with Alvin Ailey Company are wasting their time there. Mm -hmm. And so that was like this insidious thing happening that they were both saying that this white approach is the pinnacle of what you can do as a dancer and what you're doing as Alvin Ailey is not good enough, right. right? So I started thinking about that and saying, what is my role as a South Asian choreographer and dancer in addressing those kind of isms yeah. that has become normalized, that someone could write in New York Times and yeah. no one could challenge that, yeah. all the problems in that. So that's when I kind of got into it. Now coming, Coming to the United States and just doing my research, I know your parents, you know, worked hard to bring yeah. you all here for school. And so y'all can have the best, um, you and your siblings can have the best um, lifestyle and yeah. for success. Um, did they ever talk about India's own reputation of like colorism oh, and racism? Yes. Yes, yes, and yes. then coming to the U.S., like, how did you compartmentalize that and digest that in your own journey yeah. as a dark skin? Yes. <laughs> With a beard Indian beard now. <laughs> right, right. Like, but as all a person of color, right? Yes, and yes. like, and I, how did you compartmentalize all of those things in your experience too? Just being here in maybe some of those conversations with your parents, being that like they have that 
that class system in India, but then you come over to the United States and it's still a class system. It just doesn't, it isn't, it's not coined the same way. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think there's two different things. Like class is like economic mm-hmm. separations and caste, caste is like yeah. more based on the birth order. And so we were like one step above the untouchable caste in India. We were considered backward yeah. caste, but not quite untouchable. And in the messed up uh, way, in some ways you wanted the lowest caste so that you could get into a college education because we didn't have money to pay for a private school. So if you had, and this was India's approach to addressing, like India's approach of affirmative action, if you will. So so if you had, the lower you're on the rung of the caste, uh, they had to have a certain quota of admissions into colleges and universities and so so getting to be on the backward class since we were from a low-income family that was actually a good thing because the only way you could have gotten in was by merit or by this quota we couldn't have gotten in because we couldn't have afforded private college so it was good in that sense but from early on I was aware of um, the caste system and the color as you say you know like in my family I'm the darkest skinned child and I remember my mother telling me very caringly and lovingly don't play in the sun Mm. and saying things like do this hundred times every day because your nose is not sharp enough right like your nose and all this is very loving because she's trying to protect me from what I'm going to face in the world survival tactic yes right like so so it was out of hundred percent love but and you can imagine what it feels like to hear that as a child to say, don't play in the sun, do this mm-hmm. to your nose, your hair is curly and unruly. And right. my text to you about like, am I want to be on camera or not? And so like even now, 50 years later, like to, 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 to like own my curly hair is hard for me because it's like I don't have the crew cut, I don't have the business look. And then to be working in a leadership position without those external right. features is, is hard, right? It's a mind game. So I was aware of all of that growing up in India. Um, but then even when we came here, you know, like we internalized a lot of the colorism that's in the U.S. and here because often I remember like when I started going to college or work and having friends and my parents would ask, is your friend white or black? And I'd be like, what does that matter? Like, yeah. Why does it matter? Right. And um, again, it was like they were trying to locate themselves on the ladder. And how do we get up that ladder, right? Mm. They're immigrants working. My mother was working 100 hours a week. My dad was working 60 hours a week. They gave up good jobs, good lives in India so the kids could have a future. And so it's like all about that economic ladder, capitalism, right? How do we get one rung more for the next generation? And so I couldn't quite understand what was happening. But like I remember those moments in time where they were saying, is your friend white or black? all of those things, right? But don't go in the sun. (laughs) Uh, Do this 100 times every night so your nose is not flat. And um, so all of that was constantly in our mind. And and then Bollywood also, in a a curious way, plays with that. A lot of the beauty care products that is sold in the US have skin bleaching versions in India, like Fair and Lovely and all of that. Mm -hmm. So all of those play into it. Um, A lot of the actresses, who are darker skinned started getting phased out and lighter skinned actresses. It was still okay to be a darker skinned man, but the women could not be a dark skinned woman, right? Like so the usual uh, oppressions that fall on darker skinned women was there too. Um, And I think for me, another moment that's like an anchor in time is I remember in my 
Bharatanatyam dance class telling my Indian dance teacher she's dark but beautiful. And my teacher stopped the class and said, what do you mean but? Mm. Why can't a dark person just be beautiful? Yeah. Right? Like, because I had ingrained and all that into myself, yeah. right? And said, to me, like, beauty meant being light-skinned. I couldn't yeah. say beauty and dark skin could be together because I was never considered that, right? right. And so... So that was another moment I remember. This was probably 1998, 1999, when my Indian dance teacher saying, why are you saying that, right? Mm. And so then that made me go back to my own literature and start looking at our literature where, you know, Krishna, the, and now even that has been, I don't know what the word is, softened. He's, uh, his stole, he, uh, they say his skin is uh, uh, like the night sky. Right. They don't quite say dark skin, right? right? Because they want to make it cosmic so because if they say dark skin then it's like demeaning and so even in our yeah. own literature like recent tradition have started softening those things and so i'm like let's go back and and there yeah. are stories of him being the dark-skinned god or the goddess kali is the dark-skinned yeah. um, um, goddess and and powerful and drinking blood and mm -hmm. all of those things that you wouldn't associate with a goddess and so re-examining my own history, how our people were fighting against this Western approaches was important. And there are two states, um, Bengal and Kerala in India, that were really working on anti-colonial, anti-capitalist approaches in India. And a lot of the writers coming out of those states were putting out articles like that. And yeah. I don't know if you've heard about the God of Small Things. I have. Ar Arundhati Roy is an, uh, okay. the author. She was the first time that was her first novel and won the Booker Prize. And wow. it examines uh, class and capitalism and colorism and all of that in yeah. one book. And so, so it, was, it was a good moment for me to go back and connect with my own culture, mm -hmm. my own internalized yeah. racism. And, yeah. Because I think it's easy to point fingers and say, you're being racist. I am mm. racist. I've internalized yeah. this. I've been doing this. Yeah. That's when we can start working on repairing the harm. And that's also what made me sit up and notice when they were talking about black ballerinas, it's like, how am I reinforcing the problem? Right. And how do I stop that and fix it? Right. I think that's that's the first step we all should take, right? Because we all have these implicit biases. We all have these blind spots. And sometimes it's hard to wrestle with them internally. Yeah. Like, dang, why did I feel it? What? Why did I feel that way when I seen Daniel? You know, he didn't do nothing but cut me off, but I seen him and I came off with all these stereotypical yeah. things, right? Um, but that's something we all we gotta recognize, and then when we recognize it, we can we can start the 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 healing yeah. <laughs> internally and figure out where that comes from. What is that indoctrination comes from? What does that 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 self hate come from? Yes. You know, yes. um, and I always tell people a lot of times, like even growing up, seeing other black men that come from the same area as me, that look like me, it's like why am I more afraid or why am I more tensed up? Yeah. Or why do I feel I have to be more defensive when I see you? Like that, I was I was participating and being an agent of like white supremacy, right? Absolutely. You know, anti yeah. anti blackness, right? Yeah. But like admitting it, saying it and say, hey, it can happen. Yeah. With any other group, it can happen. And now what do I need to do now that I recognize it? Yeah. Um, and so that's interesting hearing that journey, especially understanding the cultures like of the US and then India yeah. and how like the intersectionality between those two and being able to compartmentalize those two from two different lenses, but all again like class and caste and racism, oppression, all of, all of, all of those <laughs> all of those things. Together, yeah. But for me that's like I love exploring those things though. Like yeah. I love like figuring out what other 
countries, continents, or like uh, ethnic groups are doing to like combat whatever they have going on, so I yeah. can learn and realize like, oh, like, because some stuff you just can't read in the book. Yeah, you know? yeah, and and some of it I'm still learning, right? Yeah. Like I'm I'm like even now after being in the art for thirty years, I'm still learning. Like and and Bharatanatyam, the dance form that I learned, the message I got when I started learning it in the '90s was that it was purified mm-hmm. by some leaders in South Asia and the version we're learning is the purified version, right? It's only in the last 10 years that there's a discourse of like, well, what are they purifying it from, right? right. And, and so traditionally it was a dance form that was practiced by courtesans. Okay. The only women in India's culture who had the authority to own property. Mm. But courtesans like, and now, you know, like you can call it sex workers, prostitution, whatever you want, but courtesans were like, they were dancers, court dancers, but the king would give them money and property. The only woman in the all of India who could own, because till then it was India, even though it was before, even before colonization, it was a very patriarchal society, mm-hmm. along with caste, it had patriarchy going there as well. And so the one source of power that women had was to be a courtesan, mm. but it meant you had to be like learned in the arts, right? Yeah. Poetry, music, dance, acting, um, all of that you had to know. And so the only way that it could be carried forward post-puritanical British rule was to clean it up, right? And so even the dance that I learned was taught to me by Brahmin teachers or the highest caste in the caste rung. They took out anything that might be sensual in the dance, anything that had a, like a softer curve. Mm-hmm. Everything became very angular and sharp, 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 because softness meant sensuality and maybe connecting it back to the roots of courtesans dancing for pleasure. Yeah. And so, like, what do we take away from our own bodies and stories, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is wrong with pleasure and sensuousness and curves? And so, that has been something I've been exploring in my own choreography and saying, what is it to be? in a sensuous body, the body that yeah. feels pleasure and joy and doesn't have to say that dance cannot touch those things, yeah. right? Um, so even in my own dance form, it's it's changed from when I started in the 90s to the last 10 years. And now there are a lot of dancers who've come out of the traditional hereditary family trees of courtesans taught to the... Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there was a generational skip where the female courtesans taught their male sons because that was the kind of the purification time because women were not allowed to be seen as courtesans or performing anymore. Then the, then it became ironic that this historic feminine knowledge became the, the fiefdom of male teachers. Yeah. And then after a few years, the Brahmin woman came back to learn it. And now that the high class women are learning it, it's cleaned up and yeah. now we can learn it again, right? So. It's all complex. It's not easy. It's not a straight line. We're going forward and back yeah. and we're figuring it out. And I have so much hope in the youth for challenging no, me and you, not you, letting me. You you giving us a master class right now. <laughs> like, cause I'm like, I'm enthralled right now because I'm a history buff too. Yeah. And what you're giving us is the a timeline of history and how things are changing socially, even within the choreography dance arena, yes, yes. Um, from you know South Asia to the to Western, yeah. and then I know you do a mixture and combination of both. Yeah, you know, and so it was really I like I was really taken back. Like I I like you know how you like have these notions about people like okay like 
you know, I'm pretty sure they're like a like a, a great, amazing individual, right? And then, then you go in a little deeper, <laughs> you say, oh, no, that's a bad man right there. Like, no, like, oh, they, like, he really does this. Like, and so that's how I felt when I was, like, doing my research on your work. But also, you always kept it tone of, like, hey, like, it's deeper than then just, like, dancing. Like, mm-hmm. this anti-racist approach to, to arts yeah. um, and how do we combat and go in and change this system yes right and so uh, what has that looked like far as hurdles challenges conversations you've had with folks in the arts community that may feel the same or may feel like hey no we just need to things are working for for for, for me (laughs) so that's that's a hard question because you know like as much as I want to try to make the change, I'm also part of the system already, yeah. right? Like when I signed the contract with yeah. Metro, I'm part of the machine. I'm <laughs> right. trying to make the change and not just here and any of the jobs I've held. Once I become a director, like already they've co-opted me. So I'm trying to do as much as I can, but right. that pressure from the top is always going to be there. Yeah. Uh, and not even intentionally, right? Like yeah. the system works in a certain way. Like right. if the train is set to go north, it's going north and you can try to <laughs> slow it down maybe and they might add a few station, but it's gonna go north, right? And so for me, from the beginning with my dance company, um, I didn't want to pick one genre because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not gonna give up my South Asian right. heritage. I'm not gonna give up where I am. This is my adopted country. I don't want to choose between modern and Bharatanatyam. I don't want to choose between Bollywood because people were talking about lowbrow and highbrow, right? Mm. And so Bollywood was considered lowbrow because it wow. was accessible to the common people, whereas Bharatanatyam had to be in the temples or auditoriums, oh. and so it was pure. And so, so I don't want to choose between that. And so when my when I did my thesis, it was a modern dance cabaret, and I wanted to bring social dance into traditional academic dance forms and say it's all the same yeah. or, or it's similar, right? Like um, that it's not, um, that one is not better than the other. Right. And so it was a battle all along. Like for my undergrad, they said I couldn't use any of my Bharatanatyam class. I, I got one elective mm. for the degree for 120 credit. I, could, I got three, <laughs> three credits. Like, so I've been working on years and I, I couldn't yeah. do it. This was before in, interdisciplinary degrees were allowed. So I couldn't build my own degree. And then in my graduate classes also, I couldn't use traditional Mm. Indian dance at all for any of my credits. So what I could do was force all of the Western schism. So that's why I said, okay, I'm going to do club and street style dance and modern dance. It's all Western. You can't say I can't do that. So I always push the edges there. Um, So that was in my work. But then structurally, like we could never go into funding, right? Because people would say, well, you're your folk and traditional. And they'll put us in that category. They'll look at us and say, well, no, you're modern. And they'll send us back to modern. And the modern will say, well, you're doing a fusion. You should be an interdisciplinary. So we would get shuttled around in the granting cycle. And then if you try to get a critic, the critic wouldn't know where to classify us, right? (laughs) They couldn't say we're a modern dance company. They couldn't talk about us as a folkloric. They couldn't talk about us as a popular so the critic couldn't really criticize or give us a review so all of those places were difficult but I think I find that's where meaning lies Mm -hmm. you know it's not in the clean check boxes Um, you know like I'm an immigrant I'm South Asian I'm single I'm queer I'm a dancer like it's like all of that it's not one or the other right and so I think I find joy 
and meaning when we try to work through those differences. Let tension be there. Uh, what do you take from a movement that was created to be probably in this space, right? Mm -hmm. Like temple altars were not that big. So, or even pa palace halls, because right. the whole court is there and you get like eight by 10 feet to dance. So all of the space in Indian dance has to happen in the body. I can show you a diagonal in my body. Yeah. I can show you height in my body by lifting up my sternum. Yeah. And in modern dance, you have a 40 foot stage. So you run from one <laughs> end to the other end and that's your diagonal. Mm -hmm. And you have leaps because the ceilings are high and you have lifts. So when you start putting these things together, it's so rich, right? Mm -hmm. Like now you have the rhythms, the facial expressions, the finger gestures of South Asian dance. And now you're adding space you're adding group choreography. Traditionally, Indian dance used to be solo performances, and now you have 15 people doing something. Think about the rhythmic variances that can happen, the polyrhythms that are happening. And, and again, as a tangent, like polyrhythms, like there are theories in India that have developed from land-based practices, right? Like people would have to go and harvest, and someone mm. was harvesting the lower part of the field. Someone was harvesting the higher part of the plant. And at one point, everyone would have to turn back and put it into the basket behind them without slicing each other's hands off. Yeah. And that's where polyrhythms are coming into our cultures, right? Mm. Like it's all connected to our actual life. It wasn't something that lived out on a stage ever. It was what we did in the fields, what we did for yeah. a baptism ceremony, what we did for the wedding, what we did for a maternity practice, right? Like so. Uh, that's also why I find it interesting to go back to culture that's been a part of people's lives and not something that's just Eurocentric or Western, where you sit passively and watch. And mm -hmm. you know, and um, I remember going to the symphonies Jonah people, and they did this amazing collaboration between. Um, the symphony and various African musicians. And I could see the discomfort in the audience because they didn't know how to react because there were some people getting up and dancing in the symphony hall. And they're like, we're in the symphony hall. Like, <laughs> I mean, they have notes. I remember going to the Kennedy Center that says, if you have to open your cough drop, do it before the performance starts. Like, don't even make the cough drop crinkling noise during the symphony. And here are people getting up and dancing in the aisles of the symphony. I could just see like, what, what was, I could sense the, but that's, that's interesting to yeah. me, right? Like that's interesting what, what happens when we put those things together. Now I want to ask you about the Nashville art scene um, and kind of how it ties into to social change and approach your arts historically and currently from an anti-racist kind of lens. Um, and then like, you know, being within a system that has maybe created some harm or some mm -hmm. issues now coming in and trying to use that same system to 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 correct to remedy mm -hmm. fix mm -hmm. um combat those things that it might have done unintentionally or intentionally yeah in the past within the national art scene yeah so I, you know i think for me the, the way i I'm, I'm new to this work and i i stumble but like the way i am trying to like get a foothold in this work is that um, for me, anti-racism is about returning what was taken away from people um, or reframing the narrative, right? Because who controls the narrative controls what's going to happen now and what's going to happen in the future. We work with a consultant, Justin Lang, and he's been good about reminding us that it's easy to talk about this big kumbaya version of anti-racism, but like brass tacks, what is it? Giving back what was stolen and then 
reframing the history of what has happened, right? And so if you look at it from that perspective, right, let's take something like the Fisk Jubilee Singers, 150-year institution. You would think Metro Arts has funded this organization, right? By any, any criteria of measurement, longitudinous, quality of work, international acclaim, supporting the community, all of that, everything, right? And, and we haven't. And so the question is then, what does that mean for us? And then if you look at the Kurdish community here, largest Kurdish population outside of Middle East, right? In mm -hmm. Nashville, and you'd expect that that representation is in our portfolio of grantees or public artwork or whatever, and it isn't there. And similarly, the Native American community has the longest roots, if you want to talk about returning, right? All the way back here. Um, and we don't have a big portfolio of Native American artists in our mm. grant making or in the city even, right? Um, there isn't even enough of a population in Nashville or in Tennessee for them to get the federal benefits. Mm -hmm. So think about what that means, like being in Nashville, Trail of Tears started right. here, right? Like, right. And so Andrew Jackson, that history, part of Tennessee, volunteer state, do you know where it comes from? They were looking for volunteers to go fight the Mexicans and keep them out from coming into us. So these are all part of our heritage, right? Yeah. Like, so when you inherit such a burden, mm -hmm. where do you start to fix it is the question. And it's complicated. And for me, it really is like looking at how do we begin to talk about it first, right? And it's, it's uncomfortable and I'm a part of this. I'm not saying that I'm not racist. I have, by signing onto the dotted line, I have become part of the system, right? right? And I'm also part of the racist system. So this is where I think that the, the problem implicates all of us. We are all complicit in it. It's like mm -hmm. if you're a fish in the water, you can't see the water, right? right. Like it's, you're in it. Um, so we also have to, and to address what's happening right now in Nashville, right? Like whether you think about the highway dividing North Nashville mm -hmm. or the gentrification that's happening and artists being used as kind of Art washing and moving right. people into those areas. That's all now, but we have to look at what the history was. And that's where the history of the Trail of Tears mm -hmm. or Volunteer State or the Civil Rights Movement, all of that contributes to where we are. And often it seems as if there's a clear slate, like we say, well, anyone can apply to our grants. But then there are reasons like, oh, you have to have a three year history, you have to be able to match the grant. And so often BIPOC arts organizations or artists don't have that support. They don't right. have a patron who's saying, okay, if you get a $20,000 grant, I'll match it for you, right? right. And, and so a lot of the organizations that have been able to get into the funding cycle have had that patron approach right. where someone wonderful like Martha Ingram endowed multiple organizations to stand up or the first family endowed mm -hmm. the museum or the Cheek family endowed someone to get started. And so when that isn't there, how do we make that work? Like that's the question for us to figure out. And what is my role is like, we're looking at the grant applications and trying to remove some of the barriers. It's not quite perfect yet. We've made some stumbles along the way, but we're learning from that. And uh, what we did do was simplify the grant questions from 15 to um, five for organizations with budgets under 500,000 and eight for organizations over 500,000. So that's one concrete way because I think the application shouldn't be a barrier. It should be a way for you to get into the process. I right. think, so I always tell my staff and our 
grand panel is that you should think of yourself as the biggest cheerleader. You want to get everyone in the door. Right. And, and how do we prepare for that? So we've offered grand clinics. So it's not that you apply and then we tell you, no, you didn't fill out all the questions correctly. We'll come to the clinic. We'll tell you how to fill it out so we can get there, right? Yeah. So we're trying to think about all of those ways in which we can make changes, but those are all incremental changes. It's still not the anti-racist return right. resources that were extrapolated from these communities yeah. back, but we're beginning to move in that direction. Um, I'm trying to like center the voices of folks who've been kept out of these conversations for a long time. And yeah. so like the arts have been complicit in a lot of this, right? Like Metro Arts has been complicit in a lot of this. And so I want to look at who's doing the good work, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's North Nashville Arts Coalition, Elisha yeah. um, Mrozik who's been running it. And there's Al Mahaba Center that Lydia Youssef is running. There's North Nashville, no, so there's Black Nashville Assembly, Casa Azafran and mm -hmm. um, the Hispanic Chamber are working on this. Uh, Middle Tennessee AAPI is doing work on this Turk, Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Coalition. So it's like, we don't wanna like just find partnerships within the arts, we have to work right. across the sector. The problem is so big yeah. and so huge that if I just do the work in the arts, I'm not going to get a crack in this wall of racism. Right? Right. It's, just, it's like the great wall of racism <laughs> that's here. And so yeah. all I can do is like maybe start to like get the small implement and get the mortar out of one brick. Mm -hmm. But I need Black Nashville Assembly. I need yeah. El Mahaba Center. I need Turk. I need Middle Tennessee API. I need North Nashville Arts Coalition to all be working on it so that eventually this wall of racism might fall. Right. And then we start asking the question of what is the next structure look like? I don't think right. we can even get there until we work through the barriers that are in place. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been trying to get those people into our grant application panel positions or uh, grant editing process. They're gonna be part of our steering committee for the cultural planning work. Um, there are amazing youth in the mm -hmm. community doing work, like high school students who come to council and ask questions that stump the council. Yeah. And I'm like, how do we get them on our steering committee for the right. arts, right? Like I want their brilliance to help us solve this. Yeah. It's a really huge problem. Um, and I think some of the other things we're trying to do is how do we shift power, right? Like yeah. traditionally, a lot of the work we do was managed by staff and commission. And I'm like, well, it's not our money we're spending, it's the taxpayer money. Right. So what we should have open call for panelists from the community to come and evaluate our grants, our public art processes, our restorative arts programs, mm -hmm. because it's their money, it's their yeah. money. We can't decide without them at the table, right? So that's something we've been doing to shift power a little bit. And, and that's the idea of bringing democracy into the processes as yeah. well. And we're trying to learn this new language. We're not quite there yet. And so what does this new language mean for Metro Arts? What does it mean for our Committee on Anti-Racism and Equity, what does it mean for our staff, the artists? Right. Uh, all of that is like something we're trying to like think about, what does this reframing look like? And what does the language look like? So those yeah. are some of the places we're trying to make a, a shift in, mm -hmm. but it's gonna take some time. We're gonna fall a lot of times. We're gonna have a lot of skin knees. <laughs> but I always say, you know, like out of the 52 agencies in Metro, Metro Arts Nashville was the first one to have an anti-racist committee mm. in 2015. And some of those work started in 2001. Yeah. It took from 2001 to 2015 to get that committee on the ground, right? So we're making a lot of mistakes, but we have very ambitious goals. And I don't wanna like tiptoe my way through this, right? Like yeah. communities of color have been waiting for, you can, depending on where you count, it's decades or centuries or like 
thousands of years, right? So, <laughs> right. so yeah. I am really interested in bold changes because disruption is valued in a lot of other fields. Mm -hmm. and, and But if we try to do something that's ambitious in anti-racist frameworks, then people say, oh, you're trying to ask for too much. Mm. Incrementalism, modulate what you're asking. And to me, that's just a different way of saying, stay in your lane. Right. Don't come to the master's house just yet. Like yeah. stay in that back servant's quarters where you belong, yeah. right? Like, so I want to be in the space where all artists can be at the table and they make the decisions, not me. Yeah. I'm just there to facilitate the artists to come in there and they get to decide how they spend their money. Mm -hmm. right. what, what, what are you hearing from, from, from Middle Tennessee artists uh, when it comes to funding or just like, hey, I feel like I'm being discriminated against. I can't get my artwork in particular venues or I'm just not being like, or there's a there's layers or classes of yeah. of art sections where you have an elitist and then you have like this other tier and then this tier. Like yeah. what what a what a artist coming to you about with these conversations about some of the the social infrastructures that Nashville has layers of that they can't, you know, they're not either getting in or not being accepted. So I think a lot of it is resources, right? Like we keep talking about returning what yeah. was taken away and resources is a big thing. Funding is a big thing for artists. Right. Um, and so in the 2020 census from that, there's some Bureau of Statistics, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, and it, it so this is like a moving target. They gave an estimate of about 15,000 individual artists in Middle Tennessee, Middle Tennessee alone. They did not count individual artists. They did not count writers or performing artists. Mm. They only counted artists who are affiliated with an organization that had an FTE count mm -hmm. in their 990 form to IRS. Mm. So if you take in all the independent artists, the writers, the performers, we're estimating between 20 to 25,000 independent artists in Nashville. And then there are about 350 arts organizations as of 2019's IRS survey. And you can assume because of the pandemic, maybe 100 of them have gone away, yeah. about 250 left. We're still only funding 75 organizations and maybe about 100 individual artists. Mm. So that tells me what the need is, right? Yeah. The need is huge. So the ask is going to be huge. We want more funding from mayor and council so that we can support these artists in, yeah. in the ways that it makes sense. Um, so that has been the biggest ask from artists has been resources. More money. <laughs> more money, yeah. You know, yeah. And the Arts and Business Council has a poll that says 25% of artists are intending to move out of the area because it's not affordable. Right. But arts don't exist in a, in a vacuum, right? right? It's like housing, access, which is important to the mayor, yeah. affects artists. Transportation, which is important to the mayor, affects right. artists. So a lot of the problems that are part of the city's infrastructure affects the artists directly. Right. And so I think we have to work on all of these issues together. Yeah. I know too, just thinking about what is considered art, you know, right? Mm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's part of that conversation. Yeah. Like, is it somebody who's painting on a canvas? Mm. Is it the spoken word <laughs> individual, yeah. right? And it's like, yeah. how does that, how, who, who's determining that, right? And, and especially when it comes to funding, like who's determining what art is and yeah. what is qualified as art? Yeah, I mean, that's that's that, that's the question, right? And, and um, I mentioned Justin Lang, our consultant, who, who's done a lot of research, probably the yeah. only one who's worked in the anti-racist, adaptive leadership 
frameworks that has looked at this historic question. And the notion of the arts is a very recent phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Like it was coined around the 16th, 17th century. Um, till then, based on his research and what I've read from his works, you know, music, music was usually allied with mathematics, mm. sculpture with architecture. And, and, and so it's, it was only as part of the Eurocentric approach that they started grouping all the arts together yeah. away from anything that had other practical lives. Or like for us, I was talking about polyrhythms, how they develop from practical needs in the mm. field, right? And um, so who defines what art is, is the question, because we're talking about reframing, right. and that's the reframe that we need to talk about. And, in, um, and we asked that question in Metro Arts itself, right? So often in our public arts, they say, well, we have to protect the art from tagging, because people come and spray paint and right. whatever. But if you look at the history of graffiti art that evolved along with hip hop, what was being termed graffiti has now become mainstream. Right. And white artists are benefiting from it. Banksy, right? Like, yeah. I don't know what he does if, if it's not graffiti, right? right? But when a white artist does it, we don't know the identity. It could be a person of color, you know, because they remind, remain anonymous. But it, it's like there's a way in which what communities of color do get commodified. Right. And there's an extraction of profit. And so like, mm -hmm. how do you return back from this capitalist approach mm -hmm. and go back to peoplehood? And how do we talk about arts as community building, part yeah. of our lives? It doesn't have to be in the theater. It could be in your faith-based organization. Yeah. It could be the quilt your grandma or grandpa is making. It could be the recipe your aunt has passed you down. All of that is art. We get to determine what is art in our yeah. culture, right? And every culture has done that. This is yeah. not a radical new idea. Um, most ancestral cultures have redefined what art is, and they take a little bit from this, a little bit from that, and yeah. they make it up as they go. And, and the reason we end up having to say what is art is because the resources are not there right. to support this expansive vision of art where anyone can be an artist. Right. And I'm asking, what does that look like? Why do we have to be in this scarcity place? Mm -hmm. Clearly, there are priorities in the budget. We have a $3.3, $3.4 billion budget. And so how do we make arts a priority? How do we right. make it part of the community? And that's the question for me, so that the funding and resources are there to have an expansive approach to arts as opposed to this is pure art, this is lowbrow, that's highbrow, you know, like really goes back to resources and, and not having arts be separate from our everyday life. But I think too, it goes back to like whatever conditioning or indoctrination of art that you learned in school, maybe it said, yeah. hey, well, this is because this is real, quote unquote, real art. That's, that's if not, you got it in yeah, school, that's if you got right? It in because, school. Uh, you know, that was also taken out yeah. of the schools. Yeah. And and the, the way we see now, and, and you all know this growing up in Nashville, like uh, Nashville has the biggest, uh, not the biggest, it has a high ratio of private schools. Right. And you know why the private schools started? Because right. segregation was coming down and we mm -hmm. couldn't have people of color mingling with white students. And, right. and so then the arts moved from public schools into the private schools. Mm -hmm. And there's again the commodification and then saying, okay, now you have to pay extra to go to a private school to get arts. And the public schools don't need arts because it's taxpayer money. And how dare you stake taxpayer money for something as uh, uh, frivolous as the arts, right? right. Like so, the so the so the 
to me, it's like racism is both this massive wall, but it's also quite flimsy mm -hmm. because they're defining constantly and redefining constantly. And if all of us can get on our feet to see what's happening and you hear you're saying, arts are not important, let's take it out of schools. Yeah. But then you're putting it back into private schools. And then that becomes a selling factor to parents to say, if you come to our schools, you get STEAM, not STEM. Yeah. And so, so, the, so the racism is, yes, it's this massive wall, but if you're all working to get that cracks in where we can, it's going to topple over. Yeah. And, and it's, it's going to be, maybe not in this generation, but we've yeah. got to work at it. What, what role would you say everyday community members that maybe or maybe not art enthusiasts, but yeah. understands like the importance of art? And whether it was a personal connection they had or indirect personal connection they had, how can they be a part of that solution that 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 you personally want to bring into mm -hmm. the metro arts and the system? How can they personally get involved? How can they personally like, hey, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have Ingram money, but <laughs> but like I might want to support an artist who's you know maybe it's five thousand, maybe it's five hundred. Like, how can they be a part of? that process start buying art okay <laughs> you know instead of saying where's the free concert and where's the free postcard start buying you know because everything yeah. you're doing in your daily life right like the logo in your hat yeah an artist designed that font right but now it's been separated from that artist and it's become a font library yeah. that's being sold right. but the artist doesn't see the benefit right? right like so how do we connect the means of creation mm -hmm. and get the person creating that work the resources is like the question I ask. And so for me, it's like support the artist right. and, and like pay the worth that they are worth. And they can do that directly, right? They don't right. have to go through Metro or any of that. Go buy the art, go to yeah. the, the gallery, go to the performance and pay for it. Don't ask for a pre, free ticket yeah. um, because you value all other labor. Mm -hmm. Why not the labor of artists, mm. right? And, and so I, I think that's something they can do directly. The larger thing they can do is talk to the council, talk to the mayor, run for office, yeah. talk to the school system, go to the PTAs and ask your schools, why isn't there enough art for your kids in your schools? Yeah. And again, I'm not talking about arts as this thing that's like here to like just have you be imaginative and creative and la 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 la. Music, we know, is connected to math, right? Like right. we know it has practical implications. We right. know that it builds stronger cultures and communities and right. arts and all of them do. And so it doesn't have to have this practical capitalist value attached to it. Let's support the arts because they make us a stronger right. community, not because they make us better mathematicians or engineers or whatever. Right. Those are all like... Um, secondary benefits but the primary benefits is that the arts are a part of community it's a part of a peoplehood yeah. let's go back there and work from there and and so yeah like buy the art pay for performances and then pay attention to what's happening in your community write to your yeah. council person run for council run yeah. for the mayor's office run for the school system and be in and on this conversation because it's your taxpayer dollars mm -hmm. and you get to decide whether it's going to go into buying more equipment or building new buildings or investing in arts, which is Music City, Athens of the South, right. Pulse of the North, uh, you know, all of those names. All like, those names. So like, put That's your money where your <laughs> mouth is, right? So the citizens get right. to decide that by their vote. Well, Daniel, this has been a math class as a person that enjoys history. I, I, I really want to do like a whole separate conversation just on India, just on, just on that alone. But I want to give you the last word 
uh, to close, if it's something that you want to just extrapolate on that we didn't touch on just enough or you want to go deeper on, or is it something that you just want to leave with the listeners and the viewers? Sure. So we have many wonderful opportunities with Metro Arts right now. So we have an operating grant opportunity open, and we have an artist call for Thrive Projects open. It's open through January 29th. So we have grant clinics, so you don't have to know anything about anything. Just call this person up. Tell them what to do and they'll walk you through what to do with the grants or the Thrive projects. We also have a lending library project, which is amazing. This will get artists $2,000 to buy a two-dimensional art project. It's going to go into a library and there are going to be six libraries that will have artworks that you can check out for three months at a time. Amazing opportunity, right? So it's, it's good for the artist. You can apply to be an artist to get a $2,000 commission or you can apply to be on a panel that selects these artists. Um, so those are great opportunities for you to come and be a part of the conversation with Metro Arts right now. Daniel Singh, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. All for right. Until next time. Yes. Till next time. <laughs>